Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 114, Annus Mirabilis, part 1. In our last episode, we looked at how the Seven Years' War progressed around the world in 1758, with things going poorly for Prussia on the continent, but the British launching a successful assault on French West Africa. Pitt made his plans for 1759. 1759 would, in North America, be the key year in the conflict. What we shall now chart over the next three episodes is the Annus Mirabilis, the Year of Wonders. Pitt made Geoffrey Amherst, who had led the attack on Louisbourg, the commander-in-chief to replace Abercrombie. Amherst was to attack Canada using either the Champlain Corridor, which was defended by Fort Carillon and Fort St. Frederick, or from Lake Ontario and the Upper St. Lawrence, where Fort Frontenac had been captured the previous year. An advance post should be re-established at Fort Oswego, which would be used to launch an attack against Fort Niagara and the territories to the west. James Wolfe was assigned an independent command to attack Canada from Louisbourg and the Lower St. Lawrence, which he should help supply. Pitt wanted operations to get underway as early in the year as possible, hopefully in May, but there had been delays. This was caused partly by bad weather and partly by the sheer effort the northern colonies had exerted in 1758. Massachusetts was already insolvent, and was saved from defaulting on the vast loans it was taking out only by the time of the arrival of bullion in January 1759. A quarter of the male population eligible for service was enlisted in 1758, and raising further men in 1759 would not be easy but Governor Pownall spoke to the Assembly about the need to support the war effort in order to be reimbursed by Parliament, and called upon their sense of patriotism and duty. The General Court eventually agreed, but said to Pownall, quote, The distress brought upon the inhabitants is extremely great. The number of men raised this year, we are sensible, cannot be equal to the last. The Assembly then made the greatest effort that has ever been known in the province. They looked upon it to be the last effort. They had no expectations that it could be repeated, and this was really so great as to render it impractical for us to make the like a second time. The number of our inhabitants is since taken much lessened. Some were killed in battle, Many died by sickness while they were in service, or soon after their return home. Great numbers have enlisted as rangers, artificers, recruiters in His Majesty's regular forces and for other branches of service. We are told that we are the leading province. We have been so for many years past, and we have been long unequally burdened. We have borne it patiently although we have seen our inhabitants leaving us and removing to other governments to live more free from taxes, 
and a few years ago, for this reasons alone, four of our principal towns refused any longer to submit to our jurisdiction, and another government, Connecticut, found a pretense for receiving them, and they are not yet returned to us. Under these difficulties, we are still willing to afford every reasonable aid in our power. A further impress would distress and discourage the people to such a degree that we are bound to decline it. But great as our burdens are, we have now engaged a bounty more than double what has ever yet been given by the province, in order to procure a voluntary enlistment of 1,500 men, over and above the 5,000 already raised, and we have reason to hope this bounty will be sufficient and have the effect your Excellency desires. End quote. This serves quite well as an example of similar conflicts as they played out in the other colonies. But with the support of reimbursement from Parliament, the recruits came. It's important to note the high wages that all these recruits were paid. We previously talked about the lack of surplus population in the colonies and how this made recruitment more difficult than in Europe. The colonies ended up competing with each other, offering higher and higher wages to be able to attract recruits to their regiments. This helped bolster the good relationship between the British Army and the American colonists that was being established. The days of the quartering crisis were long over. When Amherst was short on funds, he was even able to take out a loan from the New York colonial legislature, rather than being forced to use private merchants, as Braddock and Loudon had done. The Americans felt like they were truly partners in the project. In the end, nearly 17,000 provincials were raised for the war effort. These colonies were all directly affected by the French threats to the north, and it's interesting to compare this reaction to the one in the south. The south was poor and sparsely populated. Georgia needed to be protected by British regulars. South Carolina was able to raise some troops to defend itself, while North Carolina did nothing, and Maryland was still locked in internal conflicts. Only Virginia and Pennsylvania were involved in 1759 of the more southerly colonies, and they were both primarily interested in the Ohio Forks, not only in protecting it against the French, but also against each other. It's worth taking a slight aside here to talk about the Virginia Regiment, a unit of a thousand men which was now to be commanded by Colonel William Byrd, as George Washington resigned his command. Washington is going to temporarily exit the narrative, so I'd like to catch up with what he's done so far, and set up what he'll be doing in the background while we focus on the Seven Years' War. Washington was appointed a major back in 1752, at the age of 20, and he began his significant involvement in our narrative the next year, when he was sent as an envoy to deal with the French. He'd been made commander of the Virginia Regiment, and built it up from a force of a couple hundred irregulars into a well-disciplined unit of a thousand. He had been involved in a number of major disasters, but he had learnt, and by 1758, age 26, he was leading the defence of the colony, 
and had been one of the principal commanders in the assault on Fort Duquesne that had established Pittsburgh. He'd learned much about the British Army, but was also annoyed that he hadn't been given his royal commission. At this point, after the capture of Fort Duquesne, he resigned his command. He returned to Mount Vernon, a war hero, and began a political career by being elected to Virginia's House of Burgesses. In early 1759, he married Martha Dandridge, an extremely wealthy 25-year-old widow with two children. We'll leave them there for the moment, but don't worry, we'll pick up the story later on, as Washington becomes an increasingly critical voice of the British in the 1760s. But back to 1759. The first real campaigning of the year got underway in May with an expedition to Fort Niagara, commanded by Brigadier General John Prado, beginning to make its way up the Mohawk. When they reached Oswego, they were joined by a thousand Iroquois, who now saw supporting the British completely as their best way of maintaining influence over the Ohio knowing that their previous authority had already been drained and they would need British support. We can be reasonably confident that the Iroquois expected this to only be a temporary move, but it would have great consequences. Members from all six nations were in the group, which was remarkable, given that members of the Senecas in particular had been involved in the French raids. Prado set a portion of his men to start rebuilding the fort at Oswego, while he set off along the south bank of Lake Ontario towards Fort Niagara at the end of June. After a few days, they reached their target, which would be more difficult to take than Fort Frontenac had been the previous year. It was well defended by an experienced engineer, Captain Pouchot. Ordinarily, it might have been impossible to take, Pouchot had constructed impressive fortifications, had a good relationship with the local Iroquois, and had received extra reinforcements from Montreal. He was expecting an early attack, and when he had heard no word of an attack by June, felt comfortable to send several thousand troops to Fort Marshall, which was where an attack down the Allegheny was being planned, attempting to push the British off the Ohio Forks before they could settle. Then, suddenly, on July 6th, an Iroquois group attacked his men outside the fort. Then word arrived that the British were nearby and their Iroquois allies hadn't warned them. He immediately sent a request for reinforcements to Fort Marshall, as he had only hundreds of men left behind. The British began their siege on July 10th, and the following day he called a truce so that his Senecas could speak with the Iroquois in the British army to see what was going on. A three-day negotiation took place, while the British Iroquois tried to tell the French Iroquois that it was now unfeasible to do anything other than fully support the British, while the French Iroquois argued they should all withdraw and leave the Europeans to fight. Johnson managed to keep his allies on side only by offering them the first chance to plunder the fort, and, unsure about their loyalty, Pouchot allowed his Iroquois to leave in a truce. Pouchot was glad for the few days it gave him, but the British had continued to prepare their batteries and began opening fire on July 14th. 
The attack continued, and while it wasn't a universal success, General Prado stepped in front of a mortar and had his head blown off, with William Johnson taking command, the British had the momentum. All seemed lost. Then the relief force, perhaps 1,600 strong, arrived, but their Iroquois were talked out of getting involved, leaving 600 left to march straight into a British massacre, with only 100 surviving to be taken prisoner. Pouchot only learnt of the disaster when the British offered him the chance to surrender, with guarantees of safety, but without honour. Pouchot accepted, and Fort Niagara was surrendered on July 25th. There was no massacre. The Iroquois plundered, but did not kill. There were a few reasons for this, but the most notable was that the Iroquois now needed the British as allies, in a way not even the British had realised yet. The losses of Fort Frontenac and Fort Duquesne the previous year had been a disaster for the French. But this was something else. The connection between Louisiana and New France had been permanently broken. They had first been pushed out of the Ohio, and now had been pushed out of Lake Ontario. All of a sudden, the frontier was pushed to about a hundred miles upriver from Montreal. They had to abandon Fort Toronto, Fort Prequet Island, Fort Leboeuf, and Fort Marshall. Illinois would have to fend for itself, as would the positions in the Great Lakes, such as Detroit. It was a huge moment, but was only the first among many in the Annus Mirabilis. Join me next time when we turn back towards the Lake Champlain Corridor as Amherst plotted his assault on Canada. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. (laughs) 